uh, I am I'm excited about uh, another day in this series, Wells. Um, we've been in this series now for five weeks, and we have been journeying, if you will, kind of really not that far. We've been staying in John chapter 4, looking at the story between Jesus and the woman at the well, and it's been, a, it's been quite, quite the journey. I'm not quite sure what we're going to do all the time. I'm like, well, let's just kind of continue to turn the story and see what else is inside of it and see what else God is doing. And every time I turn it, it's like, wow, there's more that God has inside of this. Jesus is doing so much in this interaction with this woman that it's, pretty, it's quite phenomenal. And so we're going to do that again today. We're going to turn a little bit more. We're going to ask some different questions. And if you've been with us, you know the story of the woman at the well. But if you haven't, I'll quickly catch you up in like a really, really brief version. Jesus is sitting on a well and this woman walks up, and, he's, and he, offered, or he asked her for a drink. She's immediately taken back, right? Why are you asking me for a drink? For a number of reasons. She has all these barriers that come up, one of them being that she, he was a man, but the biggest one being that he was a Jewish person and she was a Samaritan. All these things that she thought they shouldn't be interacting for. Jesus, though, says, hey, I, if, if you knew who I was, you should be asking me for a drink, a different kind of drink, one that's living water. He then proceeds to tell her a little bit about her life, and he says, hey, I know some things about you. I know that you have had five husbands. I know that you have a man who is now living with you that's not your husband. And he, he immediately peeks into her life in such a way that she, she discovers something that she, she didn't know. She was missing something in her life. She was looking for truth, and he was trying to offer it to her. He offered her not only grace and truth. We talked about these things. But there's this moment here that he's trying to really show her. He's trying to show her that she's, she's actually pretty thirsty. She just doesn't even know it. She's thirsty for something. She's been trying to quench this thirst for, for some time. And if you're just thinking about the story from a natural standpoint, it's like, well, obviously she's thirsty. She's at a well and she's getting water, right? Like, duh. Like, that's what she's doing. But I don't know. Stay with me for just a moment. I want to think about this idea of thirst for just a minute because this is really what, where we've begun this series. What happens when you're thirsty? What do you do? You get a drink, right? When I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do after one of my baseball games or after sports games was whenever you are finished playing, you want what right away? You want an ice-cold like drink, right? And what's so great about when you're a little kid is there's, there's a thing that parents do. They do this rotation where they bring a ice chest, the obligatory ice chest full of sodas. You guys know what I'm talking about? In the 1980s, they brought sodas. Now parents are like, no, bring non-GMO, organic, room temperature water. <laughs> but in the 80s, they brought soda. And there was a season that it was all about Shasta. Anybody with me on the Shasta? All sorts of flavors, apple, pineapple, black cherry, Dr. Shasta, not to be confused with Dr. Thunder. <laughs> anyway, what, this, what, the, what, the, what the soda companies don't want you to know, what their dirty little secret is, is that these things that we ingest, um, they don't quite quench the thirst that we're going for. In fact, advertising for years has been about that they actually quench your thirst. I have a few pictures um, Coca-Cola, thirst stops here. Gotta love the classic Coke ads, right? You go to the next one, you got, uh, now that you're thirsty, drink uh, Dr. Pepper. That's the knockoff of Dr. Shasta, okay? Um, <laughs> or obey your thirst, Sprite, or 
Drake will beat you up. I get, okay, whatever. This is exactly what they drink after their shows, those guys. Anyway, um, this idea, right? Here's what's interesting about drinking a soda to quench your thirst. There's an interesting thing that happens where when fluid enters your body, right? There's an illusion that occurs in which it feels like you are quenching the thirst that you have inside of you. But there's something inside, there's ingredients inside of these things called sodium, sugar, caffeine, that actually further dehydrate, dehydrate you. Now, to what degree? It's a little bit of a uh, debate. I mean, if you're in the desert and you're dying of thirst, probably drink, go ahead and drink that Coke, okay? However, there's something alive in these things that they actually create an illusion of thirst. They don't actually give you what your body really wants. Your body really wants non-GMO, organic, room temperature water. That's what your body wants. But there's this illusion that happens where we think we're actually drinking and quenching our thirst. Now what Jesus is trying to do in this story is show her how thirsty she is. And he's actually illuminating that you've been trying to quench that thirst with the wrong things. You've been trying to quench that thirst with what, with what you think you need. And in her case, it was these relationships, right? She, she had been trying, she had this deep longing for connection, obviously. She just went through these men, right? And he's like, I'm trying to give you what you really want. Jesus wants her to know that this strategy she's been doing is only making her more thirsty. So this is what's happening in this scripture as we look at it at layer one. This is actually what we've been talking about the last number of weeks is that Jesus is telling her and he's telling us that you will never be able to satisfy your internal thirst for something that's external, with, with things that are external. You're never going to be able to satisfy that thing that you really long for inside with external measures like pursuing wealth or even in a relationship. There's something that's missing inside of those things that only Jesus can be the thing that quenches that thirst. Jesus is saying, I am what you are thirsting for. This is what Jesus has been saying. And we've been talking about then how do we dig into that? How do we dig a well around that? How do we really truly taste and, 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 and experience this living water that Jesus promises? This is, this is layer one of the story. If you're looking at the story, this is what we've been talking about. Like, how do I dig in and grow my relationship with Jesus in such a way that, and so, by the way, that is a one-week-old baby. <laughs> that is awesome that you are here, and, and that baby's name is Hawk. Don't forget it. <laughs> I just think it's awesome that she's here at one week. That's just me. Um, Jesus is trying to say, you are trying to satisfy what you long for internally with external things. So this is where we've been. This is what we've been exploring. But what do you think Jesus is saying more? Is that all Jesus is saying? The question is, like, if we turn the story a little more, is there more inside of it? Do you think Jesus is actually saying more? You guys are all smart. Of course he's saying more. Of course he's trying to do more. Of course he's trying to say something else. There's always more layer, layers. When I read the scriptures, there are a few things that I, that I ask myself that help me study the passage a little bit more, and I want to show you these questions. Uh, a couple questions are this. When you're reading a text, when you're reading a scripture, this is something that could help you study. What's the story behind the story? What's the background, the history, the context? This requires altitude. I'll talk about that in a second. I mean, you got to get above the story. We've been talking a lot about digging in. Sometimes you got to get above it and look at it from a 10,000 foot view, right? 
And then how should this story transform us? If you're reading the scripture and you ask yourself these questions, they're going to lead you in a, in a process of study and trying to figure out what's really going on when you read this. So let's start with the story behind the story. Do you think there's a story behind the story? I want to put an image on, up on the screen that I showed you guys about a year ago. And so if you were with us, you might remember it. If you weren't, I apologize because I'm not going to give enough time that, I, that we need on this because it's a doozy, all right? So here we go. Narrative theology is this understanding that there is a story alive in this world, and it's God's story. And if you just look at the scriptures, Genesis through Revelation, that's not the, that doesn't encompass all of God's story. That encompasses a portion of God's story. But from those pages and from that literature, we can derive a lot of themes and a lot of narrative themes of what God is really up to in this world. Meaning, what's the story behind the story, so to speak? We're getting a little altitude. We're getting above it and saying, what is God doing all the way through, right? And so, for example, you can see that sometimes there's these threads that run through it. And so, for example, if this thread runs all the way through the scriptures, there could be a thread that says the world is broken, right? If you read the scriptures and you're like, really, what's going on here? These people are broken, they're hurting, they're struggling. Oh, sin entered the world, of course, in Genesis, but it continues to go on. There's this brokenness that exists in this world. That's one of the threads, one of the narrative themes that we find alive in the story of not only Scripture, but the story of humanity, the story of God. But what I've kind of uh, would assert is that this next theme, this next thread, this is actually the mission, the purpose. What's God's purpose? If you're asking, what is God doing in Scripture? What's he doing in Genesis, and what's he doing in Revelation? What's he doing in the book of John? What's he doing in the book of Isaiah? There's a mission, that he is on a mission to restore all things. And what is he restoring? The things that are broken, right? The things that have been broken. God's on a mission to restore all things. And so when we look at a narrative, this can actually inform us how to read things, how to look at things, like what has God up to in the story? Because the narrative tells me this, so what does it mean about this one story I'm looking at. Because here's what the world has done with Scripture. Let me show you the next one. They take a story, right, in the Bible, John 4, or they take a, a verse, like when you're reading along in Ephesians, and you get to this part about slavery, and you're like, what? Slaves honor your masters. Does this mean that Paul is okay with slavery? Does, does God does he actually support slavery? That's a nugget. Whenever there's a centuries of people that believe that that was okay and backed by Scripture, they were operating under nugget theology because they took one passage or took a few passages and they formulated a whole doctrine and a whole narrative that wasn't the narrative because what's the narrative? The narrative in God's Scripture is that God frees the slaves, doesn't he? He frees them physically and spiritually. Slavery is something he he, that's just a small example of a nugget theology. We could go into a lot of others, like women and other things, but we won't get into that. There's so many nuggets that the world operates under instead of considering the narrative that he's trying to restore everything that's broken. The relationship between man and woman that's broken. The relationship between God and humanity that's broken. That's what he's up to. So when we look at this story with a little bit of altitude, and we start to get, on, get behind the story, if we fly a little higher, so to speak, what is going on? What is Jesus really up to? Because there's a story behind John 4 that's, that actually when you're reading it, if you like stop and go, like, what's going on? There's a pretty big one. There's an obvious problem 
alive in the story. We can call it a beef. I like that saying, you know, when someone says, I got a beef with you. I don't know, I just like it. The Jews and the Samaritans have a beef, don't they? What's that about? You ever wonder what the story behind that is? Hmm. Let's go back to the text. Verse number 7. It'll be on the screen. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Dr. Shasta, maybe? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So that's the beef, right? And a lot of us have heard many times about this Samaritan-Jewish sort of tension and we just think, oh, they just didn't like each other. There's got to be a story behind that. Let's go down a few verses to verse number 20. This woman brings up one of the major differences between them. She says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So already we've got we to gotta catch a word here. Our ancestors, this has been going on a long time, right? Generations, there have been people disagreeing about where to worship. On this mountain or in Jerusalem? Woman. Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus makes no bones about it. Yes, there's a problem. There's a beef. You Samaritans and we Jews. And he, he, go ahead and make, he, go, he goes ahead and makes the distinction. Calls it is, is what it is. Is that what he said? Yes. It is what it is. Let me show you a map. So this map here kind of shows you where things are. Down in the bottom southern part, you see Judea or Judea, however you want to pronounce it, tomato, tomato, potato, potato. I want to meet the person that calls it potato. <laughs> um, Ju Judea on the south, Galilee up at the northern part of Israel. And then you see the towns that we've been talking about. You see Jerusalem, you see Nazareth, the course where Jesus was born. And then there in the center, you see Sychor, which is the town that Jesus is at with this woman at the well. Now, here's what they would have done, most Jews in this day, when they're traveling from Jerusalem, say, to Nazareth. They would have not just taken the obvious path. They would have done something like this. They would have traveled over to Philadelphia. They would have stopped in the West End, played a little b-ball outside of the school, and then they would have went north. <laughs> then they would have headed over to Galilee. They would have avoided what? Samaria. Why? Because they got a beef with them. Right? They don't want to talk to Samaritans. They don't want to see Samaritans, so they're going around them. But what does Jesus do? Jesus goes straight into Samaria on his way to Galilee. Jesus is up to something here, isn't he? He's doing something. Now, what else do we know about Samaria? Well, we know the story that Jesus talks about, don't we? You remember that story that Jesus tells in which there's this guy on that gets beat up and robbed and he's left for almost dead? And then what happens? There's these two really religious Jewish people that walk by him and don't even pay attention to him. And then who comes by and helps him? The good Samaritan. Now, good Samaritan is like a huge oxymoron, right? They would have never considered a Samaritan good. That's like saying good Nazi or good cat. They just don't go together. <laughs> Sorry, cat people. That just doesn't happen. So this idea of a good Samaritan, Jesus is, Jesus is actually saying something quite provocative here to this group of religious leaders when he makes the good Samaritan the, essentially the hero of the story. 
There's so much more to unpack there, but we can't go there quite yet. Because what's the story under that story? But he's up to something. What else do we see? At a 10,000 foot view, Jesus was up to something. Perhaps the story of the Good Samaritan, the story of the woman at the well, Jesus was trying to what? Restore something. What's the narrative? To restore and to renew all things that have been broken. So 800 years before this moment at the well, the Samaritans were actually part of the Jewish people. They were, one of the tw- they were part of the 12 original tribes of Israel. Most of you have heard the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, the Samaritans have ancestry back to that. And this tribe was taken captive by the Assyrians. And during that captivity, the Jewish people began to stray away from the Lord and began to worship other idols. And they actually began to intermarry with the Assyrians and sort of lost some of their Jewish heritage. But they still stayed true to some things. They still held true to some of the Torah and some of the practices and rituals of Jewish customs. However, they had this one crazy idea one time. They're like, you know what? All the Jews, they make the holy city Jerusalem. We should make the holy place this mountain. See that mountain right there? Because they're in Samaria, and they're pointing at a mountain just nearby. That mountain, that's where we worship God. And they started making up things like that. They changed the story of Abraham. They changed some of the things that you see in the Scriptures, and they began sort of a sect. It was almost like this different... Have you ever heard of like a cult, right? That's really close, but not quite. That's what happened. And so what did the Jewish people do? Ah, they looked down on them, right? Who are these lowly, they called them half-breeds, right? These people who are less than us. These people who have, who have marred the story of God and, and who are now worshiping idols, And they began to mistreat them. They began to hate them. They began to even be violent with them. So what does Jesus do with this 800-year-old wound? Well, he walks straight into the heart of it, doesn't he? He just walks right through the center. And he engages this Samaritan woman. And he offers her a drink. The drink that she's actually been thirsty for, but had been drinking the wrong thing. Maybe, in many ways, the whole Samaritan people, right? They were thirsty, but they had been drinking the wrong thing. And here comes Jesus. And then what happens after she, he gives this woman this, this living water? Well, we haven't actually gotten into this part of the story too much, but let me read, starting in verse 28, which we did focus on verse 28 last week. Then, leaving her water jar the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony that he had told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to this woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So what is Jesus up to? What does it look like when you're getting above the Scripture, right? He offers the Samaritan woman 
woman a drink. He stays with this Samaritan town for two days. Many become believers. He calls a Samaritan person good, the good Samaritan. And then what does he do? He's not done. In his most dramatic call to the people of God, what does he say in Acts 1.8? He says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in, remember the map, in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. A lot more story now, isn't there? And then he keeps going. Jesus was up to something quite revolutionary. You remember those questions I put on the screen earlier? We'll get to them in just a second, but there's this idea of What's the story behind the story, right? Perhaps when we get a, a little above this, we start to see something new. The story keeps going. If you look ahead in Acts, the disciples actually start building the church in Samaria. Acts 9.31 says this. So the church throughout all of, now you see this map, right, as I'm reading this, and all of Judea and all of Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace by being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it continued to increase. So Jesus was looking around, right? And what was in his backyard? Samaritans. In fact, everywhere he went, there were Samaritans. He couldn't not bump into a Samaritan. And he knew that, he knew that if the good news was actually going to go anywhere, he had to probably pay attention to what was in the backyard, right? He had to probably pay attention to those who were around him. And he would look at these people, and they're like sheep without a shepherd. Why? Because he saw them not as half-breeds, as not as lesser than. He saw them as broken people who were like sheep without a shepherd. So these two questions, what's the story in the story? And then the second one is this. How should the story transform us? So what do we do with this? Now we know more? Is that it? I would think that this story in John 4 is going to transform us in many ways. That's why we're spending many weeks on it, right? There's going to be a lot of things that this story does in our own life. But perhaps this story can transform us in considering if there's people in our own life, people that are in our backyard, so to speak, that we have some sort of brokenness with. That we have some need for restoration and redemption. That we need reconciliation to occur. You see, Jesus knew something whenever he entered into this space. When he walked into Samaria, he knew that he was going to be the only way to bridge the gap. He was the common ground between them. There was nothing else that could actually... You ever, you ever thought there's no hope for this relationship. You ever thought that? There's no hope for this one. It's done. Just move on. That's where that one was. But Jesus was the only common ground that could actually exist to create peace, and he knew it. So perhaps this story can actually bring about some sort of restoration in your own life. I have a, a question for us that's after this one. Do you have brokenness with a person? 
that needs forgiveness and reconciliation. And you're like, wow, that, that's a big turn. <laughs> As we're talking about the woman at the well. This is a story behind the story. Jesus reconciling and renewing all things, starting with the brokenness that exists with the people that are closest to him. This group of people that lived all around them. Do you have forgiveness, unforgiveness in your heart towards someone? Do you have a grudge that you just keep? You know what I'm talking about? Someone that has hurt you? You know, when that person gets around and your heart rate just increases just a little bit? Someone that you can't find anything but anger for? Maybe they've lied to you or talked bad about you. More than likely, they deserve your anger or your unforgiveness. Here's what I want you to hear. Wells are often built over our deepest wounds. Jesus was up to something. He was healing this 800-year-old wound. I was in the car with, with Addie. Uh, this is a few years ago. I think she was about three years old, and we were driving along, and she just comes up with this random question. She's like, hey, God, I mean, hey, hey Dad, what's God's? I didn't mean it that way. Hey, <laughs> hey, Dad, what's God's favorite color? I go, I don't know. I think he probably likes all the colors, don't you? She's like, yeah, I think so. So then I turn, I'd like, ooh, spiritual moment. Here we go, Pastor Pat. Hey, Addie, what's your favorite thing about God? And she goes, he heals owies. And I'll never forget that moment because it was like, it was like the Lord's speaking in some ways. Never forget that moment that God heals. That's what he does. What, what's, the, what's the narrative that he's restoring He's healing the brokenness. And so when I think about the relationships in our life that are broken, and I think about, this is real, I think so many of us have broken relationships in our life that we've just decided we've got to just cut our losses and move on, and maybe that's true, but there's some that are fresh, that are really fresh wounds in your life right now. And sometimes it's not just the people that hurt you, sometimes there's an element in this room, even right now, among good people, in which there's people in your life that we try to keep down, we work against. We wouldn't call them our enemy, but we certainly aren't trying to lift them up. There's people in our life that we, we, we might talk badly about quite often. And there's a brokenness in the, in the friendship or in the relationship, and sometimes it's people that we say we love, yet every time we're with them, we, they just, we just can't handle it. We just continue try and keep the brokenness and the wound fresh. And what I'm saying about this idea that sometimes the deepest wells are built over the deepest wounds is because Jesus enters the deepest wounds that we have and he's the only thing that can be the common ground and the peace. And I truly believe Whenever forgiveness enters our heart and ever reconciliation and restoration occurs in that brokenness, we taste the type of living water that Jesus offers. Because Jesus, what I mean, Jesus, this is what he does. 
He forgives people who continually hurt him and reject him and, and who turn their back on him. And this is the story, isn't it, of God throughout, the, throughout Scripture and throughout our own life. It's a story of forgiveness. So do you have a person that you hold unforgiveness or anger towards? Maybe it's a parent, or maybe it's a friend, or maybe it's a child, or maybe it's an old boss or a new boss, or maybe some sort of family member. And I would say that's exactly where God is trying to break through. That's where he wants to do the work of restoring. So I'm about, I'm about done. But I do believe this can be a person. <laughs> this could even be a whole group of people that we sort of place our anger on. So there's two sorts of ways to consider this today and how this story should transform us. First, do you have a person that you need to forgive? You have freedom to do that today. Do you have a person that you need to forgive? Do you have persons that you need to forgive? And the second is, did you have a, do you have a person that you've mistreated, that you talk about poorly, that you try and work against them? And I actually thought about that a lot this week because I think for a lot of us, there isn't some looming enemy in our life that lords over us and that we continually, it's like our nemesis. A lot of us, it's just like, it's not that big. But when I think about the brokenness in my own life, I can think about real examples of people that I've, that have decided that I'm going to work against them a little bit. I'm, I'm not going to let peace reign there. I'm going to work against them. Subtle, really smart ways. That's what we do. Really clever ways of working against people. Keeping them down. Or, so if, that's, if there's someone like that in your life, you're like, you know what, I do that to that person. I do it. Don't you want to be free of that? Don't you think they deserve to be free of that? But then there's others that we really are dealing, we have wounds, we have hurt, we have pain, we have things that have happened to us, things that have been done to us, and, and you feel like you wear it with you every day. You see that person and it, just comes, it all comes back. Listen, there, there's so much behind that. There's a story behind that story. I get it. But I also know that we want to embrace the full 100% grace and forgiveness of Christ, and we're so thankful that he does it. And he is calling us to the same type of forgiveness in our life. This is not for their sake. It's for the sake of what Christ wants to do in you and through you. And Christ wants to free you from that grudge, from that anger, from that hurt, and from that pain. And he wants to dig a well that's so deep and give you new, lasting, living water that you can find freedom from that pain and that hurt. So do you have a person that you're just like, I just need, to, just need freedom from it. And you're like, how do I do it? Well, I would just say this. First, it begins with truly like coming to the Father in prayer. And saying, Lord, I'm, I'm asking you to free me of this. I'm asking you to help me forgive. Or I'm asking you to help me, release me from this anger. Whatever it is, 
that's keeping, that's, that's, it's, it's making us, remember this go around the problem? <laughs> How many of us do that all the time? And instead we need to go straight into the heart of it. And we need to bring the reconciliation and the restoration that Jesus and his ministry always brought. So whatever that person God has rattled in your heart today in just these last few minutes, I want to suggest that you do something about it. Would you bow your heads with me? You know, the well that God can dig through forgiveness and healing and pain and wounds, He can dig a well provide some of the best water we can ever drink. Well, very quickly, just as a way of just you responding to the Lord today, this isn't about anything other than that. It's not about getting people to raise a hand or anything like that. It's just, a, it's just an act of you saying, God, I'm listening and I'm hearing you right now. But if today you would say God is using these words and using this story to bring to mind a person or people in your life that you need to forgive, or that you, you need to release some form of anger from. If you'd say, you know what, I have someone already right now in my mind that God's putting on my heart. No one's looking around. I won't even look around. But if that's you and you just want to acknowledge that before the Lord today, would you just lift your hand where you're at? Father, I want to pray for every person that we're thinking about. I want to pray that, Lord, we would have a heart of compassion and grace, a heart of forgiveness, one that, Lord, you, you've placed in us those, those abilities to do that. Lord, I pray for each person that raised their hand, that, Lord, you would, your, your spirit, your power would work in us today. And that, Lord, we would allow your Holy Spirit to free us from this, really this form of bondage that keeps us grounded in unforgiveness and hatred and anger. Lord, we pray we have the courage, the courage to forgive, to reconcile. We pray these things in your name. Amen.